Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Brink Lindsay. I'm Vice President for Research here at Cato. It's my pleasure to welcome you to a book forum today uh, where we'll be discussing the latest book from Ralph Nader, uh, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. Yeah, you heard that right. Ralph Nader is speaking at the Cato Institute. <laughs> and that, that little popping sound you hear is heads exploding all over Washington. <laughs> the same sound you hear when people discover for the first time that the Koch brothers oppose the drug war and support drug legalization. Because when you look at the world through ideological spectacles and see everything in terms of left versus right, uh, a lot of the most interesting things in the world become invisible. Uh, in particular, if you look back at recent American history, uh, important parts of the story get lost. So when we think back to the 1960s in opposition to the military dra draft, we think of this as a heroic left-wing cause and student radicals opposing uh, the war and conscription. <clears throat> but the other part of the story is that one of the most influential opponents of military conscription was none other than Milton Friedman, leader of the Chicago School and economic advisor to Goldwater and Nixon, uh, but who had long <clears throat> opposed the military draft, had made the case against it in his seminal Capitalism and Freedom, and then served on the Nixon administration's Gates Commission, which paved the way to the move to an all-volunteer army. Looking back over uh, at the end of his life, uh, Friedman said that his proudest policy accomplishment was his role in ending the draft. Likewise, when we look back at the heyday of deregulation, what do we think of? We think of Ronald Reagan and the rise of conservatism when in fact many of the most uh, important deregulatory initiatives uh, uh, of the 70s and 80s occurred during the Carter administration. Uh, and indeed, airline and trucking uh, deregulation, uh, the leader uh, in Congress uh, was none other than Ted Kennedy and his young aide, Stephen Breyer. And one of the most influential supporters outside of Capitol Hill uh, was none other than our guest today, uh, Ralph Nader. Uh, flash forward to today, and Ralph Nader once again sees interesting developments in the blind spot of partisan conventional wisdom. The prevailing picture of American politics today is that of polarization. Left is left, and right is right, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, but Ralph Nader sees uh, something else. He, he looks past the cable news sound and fury and sees the possibilities of left-right convergence in a number of key policy areas. Uh, in particular, he sees potential uh, for principled libertarians, conservatives, and progressives to form a left-right alliance uh, of outsiders against a corrupt and overreaching bipartisan Washington establishment. Uh, the most promising causes for such an alliance that Ralph identifies are, in my opinion, uh, one, opposing the massive civil liberties violations of the surveillance state, two, fighting bloated Pentagon spending and military overreach abroad, and three, uh, campaigning against corporate welfare and bailouts for privileged insiders. <clears throat> the common denominator for all three of these causes is a suspicion of power, power that can be corrupted by using uh, public power to enrich private purses, and power that can be abused by turning the coercive machineries of the state against the people it is pledged to protect. Of course this is a blind spot uh, for the establishment. 
if there's one thing that Washington insiders are united on, it's love of power and a complete lack of suspicion of power. Oh, sure, there's suspicion of the other guys having power, but power in the abstract uh, is just fine uh, for, uh, <clears throat> for uh, Washington insiders. The only trick is making sure it's in the right hands. Uh, but <clears throat> for libertarians, uh, suspicion of power is in our DNA. So any effort uh, to, to reorient politics in this direction uh, should come uh, as welcome news on our part. And for my part, uh, I can't think of a better leader from the progressive ranks uh, than Ralph Nader, uh, whose whole career uh, has been characterized by a principled opposition to unchecked power. Uh, notably, uh, in recent years, uh, <clears throat> it's easy to find uh, people on the left uh, criticizing uh, uh, civil liberties abuses during the Bush administration. Uh, they got a lot more silent, uh, the people on the left, during the Obama administration. But Ralph Nader has maintained and even raised the de decibel level uh, as civil liberties abuses have been consolidated and expanded. Of course, uh, Ralph Nader and libertarians have real differences, and those differences are rooted in different conceptions of the power to be worried about. Uh, Ralph is much more worried than I am uh, about corporate power, uh, and uh, we libertarians tend to worry uh, more about expansions of government power than Ralph does in particular instances. Uh, but what we can certainly agree on uh, is that when big business and big government uh, get in bed together, uh, we're very unlikely to ooh and ah over the baby pictures. <laughs> uh, in any event, <clears throat> libertarians are a, a tiny minority in American politics, and so when anybody uh, wants to extend a hand to us, uh, I believe it behooves us uh, to be hospitable, and hence today's event. Uh, let me introduce our speakers for what I think is going to be a wonderful discussion. Uh, I'll start with the commenters. Uh, uh, after Ralph speaks, our first commenter will be uh, Dan McCarthy, uh, who is the editor of The American Conservative, a magazine which, of direct relevance to today's proceedings, has served as a standard bearer for realism and restraint in foreign policy, in contrast to the more bellicose tendencies that have recently been dominant in conservative thinking. Uh, I mention this with special humility, as Dan was right about these things back when I was dead wrong. Uh, it took the dismal experiences of occupying Afghanistan and Iraq uh, to beat the old Cold War hawk out of me. Uh, in addition to his work at the magazine, he has written for numerous other publications, including The Spectator, Reason, Modern Age, and he even worked on the 2008 Ron Paul campaign. Uh, Tim Carney, our other commenter, is a senior political columnist at the Washington Examiner where his beat is the often squalid intersection uh, of business and government. Uh, he's also a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he helps direct the Culture of Competition project to examine barriers to competition in all areas of American life. He is the author of The Big Ripoff, How Big Business and Big Government Steal Your Money, back in 2006, and Obamanomics in 2009. You're sure those are two separate books? <laughs> Uh, and finally, our main speaker today, Ralph Nader. Uh, surely, here is a man who needs no introduction, as the saying goes. But it's my job to introduce him. Uh, and hey, if we got rid of all the unnecessary jobs in Washington, then where would we be? <laughs> <laughs> 
So in a public career now spanning a half century, uh, Ralph Nader has been an activist, author, critic, gadfly, organizer, coalition builder, and presidential candidate. He is in particular a founding father of the modern consumer protection and environmental movements. Overall, it is a career uh, that has made Ralph Nader, according to The Atlantic Magazine, one of the 100 most influential figures in American history. On a personal note, uh, I met Ralph uh, about a year and a half ago in an a event that's actually related in his book. Uh, but before that, the last time I actually saw Ralph Nader on stage, uh, I was a freshman at Princeton University, 18 years old. My roommate and I, uh, both uh, very libertarian and at the time uh, very rah-rah pro-Reagan, uh, went to go see Ralph Nader uh, speak on campus with a giddy anticipation of seeing one of uh, Satan's henchmen in the flesh. <laughs> so if somehow or another uh, my present-day self could have whispered in my 18-year-old self's ear and told them that approximately 100 years from now, you're going to host an event with Ralph Nader, my mind would have been completely blown. Uh, so, with warm appreciation for the weirdness of life and the special weirdness of American politics, it's my great pleasure to introduce Ralph Nader. Thank you very much, Brink and uh, Dan and Tim, and thank you all uh, for coming. Uh, this book is a long time in uh, being conceived, and it uh, goes back a long ways in terms of my experience with uh, people of different ideological uh, labels. And it was quite clear to me uh, many, many years ago that power structures believe in dividing and ruling, and if they can distract attention from the areas where different groups agree to where they disagree, they can pretty much uh, change that strategy of divide and rule into an institutional uh, awareness level. And so you see all these arguments and all these descriptions about red state, blue state, conservative, uh, liberal. Uh, uh, you see the uh, polarization word used uh, all the time. And it is true. Uh, left, right uh, do disagree uh, rather interminably on things like reproductive rights, balanced budget, uh, school prayer, uh, gun control, uh, with uh, variations on the margins. Uh, that, those are generally areas of, uh, of disagreement. But the areas of agreement are extraordinarily uh, numerous and very fundamental. They're fundamental in terms of the procedural rights of any society that calls itself democratic, such as civil liberties. Uh, they're fundamental in terms of the misuse of taxpayer dollars. Uh, for example, into the military-industrial complex that President Eisenhower warned us against. Uh, they're very fundamental in terms of preserving local, state, and national sovereignty from excessive uh, surrender uh, to unaccountable transnational systems of corporate governance like uh, NAFTA and the, the World Trade Organization. Uh, they are fundamental in terms of law and order for the rich and powerful. Uh, not just for street criminals. Uh, they, they are fundamental in terms of giving voters more voices and choices. That means lower ballot access barriers. We have the highest ballot access barriers in the Western world. Uh, it means more parties. It means more voice and more choice for voters. Uh, structurally, it means that if we give candidates more rights, 
uh, to get on the ballot, we are irrevocably giving voters more rights to have the choices of both agendas and, and candidates. Now, those are pretty important areas. Uh, and there are more areas of convergence between left and right. <clears throat> this book is for serious people who read, think, and are very serious about our country's future and its place in the world. And some wry satirist may say, well, you can get all those people in one room. I disagree. I think basically uh, the left-right convergence operates at various stages from inception to victory, depending on the issues. It operates, and it's already there in terms of public opinion. We have large majorities behind the issues that I've mentioned. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the polls on breaking up the big uh, banks that are considered too big to fail, they come in at around 90% because the people fear that Wall Street will crash Main Street again. The polls come in very high on prosecuting big-time Wall Street crooks. That comes in, you know, off the chart. People think there was wrongdoing in the crashing of our economy and unemploying 8 million people and burdening taxpayers with a gigantic bailout, not to mention the shredding of worker pensions and the savings of people. And yet, nobody was prosecuted Nobody went to jail. In contrast to the savings and loan scandals, where there were prosecutions, convictions, and jail terms served by over 800 officials of the SNLs uh, a mere 25, 30 years ago. So things are getting worse in terms of what? In terms of what Franklin Donald Roosevelt called fascism. He called it in a message in 1938 to the US Congress asking for the creation of a temporary National Economic Commission to investigate concentrated corporate power. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing him, except for that word, which he used, he said, whenever government is controlled by private economic power, that's fascism. And crony capitalism is the phrase that people on the right use. Corporate welfare is the phrase that people on the left use. But what it amounts to is extraordinary power over government agencies and departments to turn their mission into a corporate capitalist guaranteed system. And I use the word corporate capitalism to contrast uh, the capitalism that we associate with small business, who if they don't succeed, they're free to go bankrupt. And big business, if it doesn't succeed because of mismanagement, crime, or other irregularities, they go to Washington. Or if they don't, do go to bankrupt, bankruptcy, uh, it is immediately tied to a government bailout, as we saw with General Motors not long ago. The basis of the convergence, to go even deeper, is the preamble to the Constitution, which is we the people, not we the corporations. The word corporation, the word company, the word political party, none of them exist in our Constitution. So it's interesting to raise the question, well then why do they control us? Why do big corporations and political parties control us? It's largely an out of control judiciary that ascribed increasingly constitutional rights across the board with the exception of the Fifth Amendment self-incrimination 
to artificial entities known as corporations. And so the sovereignty of the people began to be subordinated to the sovereignty of the transnational corporation. <clears throat> the, the basis for the convergence then uh, runs in, in the following stages. It starts in terms of public opinion. Uh, as Abraham Lincoln said, uh, with public sentiment you can achieve anything. Without public sentiment you can't achieve much of anything at all. The, the number of convergences in terms of public opinion uh, I reduced to 24, uh, partly because I ran out of space. <laughs> there are at least 24 significant areas, including uh, the opposition to the use of eminent domain to seize homes and private uh, businesses and uh, allow the state to level that area and give it to a corporation like General Motors or Pfizer. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled that was okay. It's interesting that it was a 5-4 decision, and four of the 5-4 were liberals. So there's a major convergence of opinion that that simply is wrong. It's one thing taking private property for building a highway or a bridge or whatever, school, but when you take private property from the powerless and then give it to the powerful private property of corporations, that's wrong. And following the Kelo decision, the New London case, the 5-4 case I just mentioned, about 20-some state legislatures immediately passed uh, legislation saying, not in our state are you going to have eminent domain on private property uh, to be transferred uh, to private uh, property. Indeed, at the state legislature level, a lot is going on that could not go on without left-right legislatures. Juvenile justice reform, reducing some of the horrendous uh, sentences has been passed now in about 15 states. Uh, it could not have been passed without uh, right-left uh, cooperation by the state legislators. Moreover, what we're seeing uh, in, in many state legislatures is a reevaluation of the war on drugs, which is has severe economic and civil liberties dimensions uh, to it. We are also seeing uh, increasing questioning of uh, economic development policies that require taxpayers to fund stadiums, ballparks, and assortment of uh, companies uh, that wouldn't have otherwise made it uh, on their own. <clears throat> now, I had an, a, a, a talk with Ed Crane, who had something to do with uh, the Cato Institute, <clears throat> and uh, he said, uh, he said, Ralph, I oppose all corporate subsidies, unconstitutional wars, the civil liberties restrictions, the Patriot Act, and the Federal Reserve run amok. And I said, that's a pretty good start, Ed. Those are not minor issues, are they? <clears throat> so the question uh, becomes, how do you turn large majoritarian left-right public opinion operationally so that it moves into coherent visibility, it moves into coverage by the press, then it moves further into being put on the table of candidates at local, state, national elections, and then it becomes part of debates, and then the media covers it, and the pollsters cover it, and basically we're off to uh, a, 
strain of political dynamism from which uh, there is no return. They become part of the public uh, discourse. Surprising as it may be to some, and I always draw the distinction between conservatives and corporatists. Corporatists really have no problem with big business running our political economy. They're not worried about big money in politics. Uh, they're not worried about sovereignty shredding uh, corporate managed trade agreements. They're not worried about uh, Wall Street once in a while misbehaving. That's okay. Uh, that's the way a free market operates. You, you rise and you fall, except that they fall on the backs of the taxpayers. And they're not very worried about the reality that there's virtually no agency or department in our Washington scene uh, for which the most important outside and inside power is corporate. They put their own officials in high government positions. Corporate lawyers become federal judges. And so it's important to ask ourselves on issue by issue, at what stage from public opinion convergence to becoming more coherently visible uh, to being uh, recognized by the media and the pollsters and to be put on the table by, uh, by the candidates and, and to be part of the public uh, discourse. An interesting one is the minimum wage. Now, the minimum wage is anathema probably to strict libertarians. Uh, but it isn't just libertarians and liberals that are converging. It's basically many libertarians, many conservatives who never would call themselves corporatists, liberals, and progressives. And when you come in 70, 80% for a restoration of the minimum wage to what it would have been at the level of 1968 adjusted for inflation, which would be just under $11 an hour now, it's seven and a quarter federal now. When you do that, you know there are a lot of conservative workers in Walmart and elsewhere who are not gonna sacrifice the necessities, the bare necessities of life for their family and re reject moving up to the 1968 inflation adjusted level because they are doctrinaire conservatives. And this raises an interesting point, uh, that at a high level of abstraction, is where you get most disagreement because political power brokers realize they can get people disagreeing, fighting each other, uh, rooting themselves in immovable uh, positions at abstract levels of general philosophy and general labeling. But when you bring it down to where people work, where people raise their families, uh, at the community level, the reality begins to weaken the ideological abstract rigidity that people might hold uh, otherwise. In the book, uh, I, I took uh, an opportunity to see how corporatists masquerading as conservatives and conservatives vastly outnumber uh, out, uh, corporatists. Corporatists happen to be more in power how corporatists misinterpret or conveniently avoided recognizing that their principal political philosophers, uh, starting with Adam Smith, were almost uniformly as worried about corporate co coercion as they were about government coercion. It's just that corporate coercion spilled over into government coercion as its principal instrument of control in addition to direct 
corporate coercion on, say, consumers or other recipients. Adam Smith, who is probably the most widely read uh, political philosopher of his time. I mean, he even went into customs reports. He, in, he read uh, travelers who went all over the world at that time in trading and wrote their accounts. Uh, a voracious absorber of knowledge and a very insightful person into human nature. He believed in public education. He believed in public works. He warned repeatedly about businesses getting together to collude. He was against government regulation because he believed that it would always be taken over by corporate power and used against the people, twisted. Even someone like Frederick Hayek uh, was someone who advocated, in the words of his biographer, regulatory mechanisms to prevent fraud, deception, and monopolies, and said there was a strong case for government providing, quote, this is Hayek's quote, some minimum of food, shelter, and clothing sufficient to preserve health and capacity to work, and for organizing a comprehensive system of social insurance for sickness and accidents. He was against Medicare and Medicare, Medicaid because they weren't universal. They were discriminatory. So it is important to also show that there is a larger convergence between many of the heralded liberal philosophers as well as the conservative philosophers. I want to say just a, a few uh, brief words on the issue of government waste. This is one of the early convergences as far as I was concerned and what really uh, convinced me that uh, left-right convergence is likely to be the only political realignment that can get things done in this country in the next 12 years. You can see it bubbling up even in Congress with uh, over a year ago, conservatives and liberals in the House of Representatives defying John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi almost passed a bill to block the dragnet snooping of the NSA of the American people. You can see it in the passage of the whistleblower protection bill of 2012 and the False Claims Act of 1986 uh, to give public employees an, uh, the rights and the protections to blow the whistle on corporate and other fraud on the taxpayer, say on Medicare or on uh, Pentagon uh, con uh, contracts. But in 1983, <clears throat> our groups were fighting a project called the Clinch River Breeder Reactor. And it was on the Clinch River in Tennessee, and it was a pet project of Senator Howard Baker, who sadly just passed away yesterday. And it was a pet project also of Westinghouse and General Electric, and it was supported by Ronald Reagan. What was interesting about this was it, 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 it already spent $1.3 billion and there wasn't a shovel in the ground. And the projection was that it was gonna go three to four times over the original cost estimates. Now our side didn't like the breeder reactor because of safety issues, of plutonium proliferation risks, uh, 
and how it diverted tax dollars away from more efficient energy modes. And we weren't getting very far. And Senator Bumpers called us up from Arkansas and said, why don't you connect with some of the right-wing groups? I've been hearing mumbles here. And so I called up Fred Smith. Now, you won't get a stricter libertarian than Fred Smith. And he was running the Competitive Enterprise Institute. And he says, I don't like this for taxpayer protection reasons. It's a waste of taxpayer dollars. So we created a group called Taxpayer Protection Group. It was the umbrella group of left and right. And we went to work on Capitol Hill, against all odds, by the way. I mean, taking on the nuclear industry, Ronald Reagan, powerful legislators in the Congress, and <clears throat> the lobbies of GE and Westinghouse uh, is pretty well insurmountable, it was viewed at that time. The vote came in the Senate. We won 56 to 40. And that was the end of the Clinch River Breeder reactor. Now, why did this work? Because a new group was formed, it wasn't very elaborate, which was the umbrella over both sides, and the people working under that umbrella went to work every day, and they only had the Clinch River on their mind. The problem with think tanks like Heritage, Progressive Policy Institute, Economic Policy Institute, Cato, is they've got a lot of issues. All those groups have come out years ago with attacks on corporate welfare. They've put out reports on corporate welfare. Uh, but the next stage didn't occur. They didn't get into an operational mode to do something about it. And that, to me, is the problem. Unless we start nonprofit advocacy groups that are singularly focused on convergent issues, it's not going to happen. Because every day, people go to work for Cato, Heritage, Public Citizen, Economic Policy Institute. They have other priorities for which they get funding. And those other priorities for which they get funding are usually left-right disagreement issues. And so they're not about to uh, have the, the elbow room or the space uh, to work on what they idealistically uh, believe in that, that we call uh, convergence. Now, this happened with John Kasich, a perfect example. He was a House budget chair, as many of you know. Uh, I persuaded him in 1998 to hold the first hearings in American history on corporate welfare. Imagine that, the first hearings. And he invited Grover Norquist and me <clears throat> and others, left, right. And it was a marvelous day, uh, but the press hardly reported it because they knew it was going nowhere. They read John Kasich as saying he's a sincere person. He believes in, in uh, restricting corporate welfare. At, at the time, he even criticized the bloated military budget. But whether it was Newt Gingrich above him or what have you, uh, it was not going to move to the legislative uh, stage. Governor Kasich of Ohio received three letters from me uh, when he was elected and afterwards, saying, now you can do something about corporate welfare at the state level. And I've received no answer. Now, that's because there is no infrastructure for convergence to push these matters further. When I was debating Milton Friedman, uh, I got him to agree that, that there should be regulation of pollution. He didn't think there should be 
licensing for doctors. He thought the American Medical Association was the worst cartel. But he agreed there should be regulation uh, against pollutants, much of which you can't see, sense, long-range damage, all the rest of it. Not exactly market choice. I was debating uh, Ronald Reagan once, and I challenged him on corporate subsidies. And he came right back and he said, I always tell my friends in the business world not to put their hand in the Washington trough. And so he came out against corporate subsidies. But when he became president, uh, he didn't challenge corporate subsidies and the constant expansion of corporate welfare proceeded under his watch uh, by and large as well. Now again, there's lack of an infrastructure out there. Public opinion convergence may raise the alarm in the minds of politicians, but it doesn't get very far unless it can be cogently visible and get media and get polls and start to get on the table of one or more of the, uh, of the political candidates at various uh, levels. So I have a chapter in my book uh, called uh, Dear Billionaire. Some people think I'm on a kick trying to find enlightened billionaires. And uh, I figured the following. There have never been more billionaires in the United States. Some of them don't even know they're billionaires, but they are in terms of their net worth. There's got to be a few enlightened ones in their 70s and 80s that are no longer thinking of just amassing wealth. They're thinking of posterity, one of the favorite words of our founding fathers. They're thinking of their children and grandchildren, and they're very worried about where this country is sliding and where the world is going. And so to start these connector nonprofit advocacy groups for convergence, for left-right alliances to dismantle the corporate state, it's going to require some of these groups who are not conflicted with other agenda priorities for which they are receiving funding day after day. I want to end on this note. Brink has the priorities of the bloated military budget and empire, civil liberties and, and the Patriot Act, and crony capitalism. There's another, <clears throat> excuse me, there's another libertarian in New Hampshire, Steve Erickson. His big thing is term limits, gerrymandering, and election reform. I point these differences out because there will be differences of priorities. These are shifting alliances. They don't have to be written in stone. There'll be different priorities, and there'll, there'll be some disagreements over means to an end, uh, although there are less disagreements on means to the end when you're opposing something and you want to abolish it. And so the aggregation of concentrated power is so heavy that there's plenty of stuff to oppose. And, and, uh, and abolish without boiling down into differences of how, what road do you take to a commonly agreed upon uh, end. Last point I, I want to make is, and, and this is uh, very important, crony capitalism, which is sort of the, the binding phenomena, the, the convergence of big business with big, big government, run by corporate Democrats and corporate Republicans. 
That's the convergence we're up against with the left-right alliance to dismantle the corporate uh, state. That, that is inextricably linked to a double standard in the enforcement of the law, to the weak enforcement against the corporate crime wave, whether it's, it's corporate damaging your health and safety through products, through air, through soil, whether it's corporate corruption and takeover of government, whether it's looting the taxpayer dollars. Uh, the issue of corporate crime does not come close in terms of political attentiveness uh, to the issue of street crime. I call corporate crime crime in the suites because I'm a little bit prone to uh, uh, rhyming. Crime in the suites has got to raise itself in terms of priority here. And this is something which liberal and progressives are much keener sensitive to than the conservatives and liberals that I spoke to. Not that the latter are insensitive, there's just a different level of urgency. Just like conservatives and libertarians have a different level of urgency about government waste and programs that don't work than a lot of liberals and, and uh, progressives. But the impunity and immunity of corporate crime in all its complex manifestations, as well as its global presence of evasions, brings down the very principle of the rule of law in this country. And if there's anything conservative and liberal economists have agreed on, is that without the rule of law, without the freedom of contract, without access to the courts for wrongful injuries, you cannot have a just and efficient economy. And we have lost now the freedom of contract with fine print contracts. They are not competed over American Express and Visa and same, you know, Ford, General Motors. We all sign on the dotted line, don't we? And they all have pretty much the same fine print. And what it comes down to is we have lost our freedom of contract for the vast majority of transactions because we cannot go across the street to another vendor because the contracts are all pretty much the same involving unilateral modification, compulsory arbitration, et cetera. So I hope I've conveyed enough of the convergence so that we elicit, it's very easy to elicit disagreement. That's not what this is all about. We agree, we disagree. But now we have to focus on agreeing where we agree and turn it into operational change for our country and its place in the world. Thank you. Well, Ralph, uh, thank you for those remarks, and uh, thank you also for this book, uh, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. Uh, before I launch into my remarks, I should say this book really does contain just fascinating material, both for conservatives and libertarians. Uh, Ralph already mentioned uh, Friedrich Hayek is one of the libertarians that he finds a great deal of common ground with. There are many others as well, such as Frank Meyer and Murray Rothbard, and many traditionalist conservatives too, such as Peter Virick and Russell Kirk. So really, wherever you're coming from, on the left or um, on the right, among conservatives, libertarians, or liberals, or progressives, uh, you will find something in this book that you didn't know before 
for, and that you'll actually find uh, very compelling, and uh, it will change the way you look at the political spectrum. So let me thank also the uh, Cato Institute and uh, Brink Lindsay for his very kind uh, introductory remarks. Ralph's book really gives us a new set of tools for dealing with a very old problem. It's a problem that the left and right by themselves have both been inadequate for addressing. It's a problem I think that was very well diagnosed about half a century ago. Carl Oglesby, who was the leader of Students for a Democratic Society, which was a left-wing student activist group during the Vietnam War era, was asked to name the system. What was this system which the new left was opposing? What was responsible for the Vietnam War, for the militarization of our campuses, and for the sense of um, ennui and hopelessness that was starting to overtake an entire generation? Carl Oglesby called the system corporate liberalism. And I think he named it very, very well, both in the fact that he got uh, the essence of the system right, and also that the name itself conveys something of the difficulty that we face in fighting this system of corporate liberalism. Because the name corporate liberalism sounds as if it might be maybe capitalistic. It sounds like it might have something to do with free markets. Uh, certainly, that's what the word corporate sometimes means to many conservatives and many libertarians. Mm -hmm. But is it in fact the case? Well, Ralph's book shows very effectively that the kind of uh, political economy that we have is not really a true free market. That in fact, it is a system that is crony capitalist. And libertarian populists such as uh, Tim Carney have been doing brilliant work exposing exactly how government and big business are in bed together. So what, we, what uh, Carl Oglesby called corporate liberalism is not, in fact, capitalism. And you can oppose corporate liberalism without necessarily opposing capitalism. Now, there are, you know, in the grand coalition of left and right, uh, people who do have thoroughgoing critiques that they make of capitalism. But, you know, they're free to do that. And uh, those of us who support capitalism are free to say, we want a capitalism, but we don't want crony capitalism. We don't want favoritism. We don't want corporations to have special government privileges that they use to attain monopolies or oligopolies. Well, corporate liberalism also sounds as if it might have something to do with freedom. Surely the word liberalism, both to people on the left and to many libertarians, denotes the idea of human rights, perhaps democracy, many of the good things that uh, come with our system of government and with our historical freedoms. So is it in fact illiberal if we oppose corporate liberalism? Well, the fact is that it is not illiberal to oppose corporate liberalism because in fact, corporate liberalism is a hypocritical uh, system of economics, uh, politics, and foreign policy. Corporate liberalism in fact is responsible for such things as uh, the normalization of torture over the past decade, for the vastly growing surveillance state, which uh, you know, uh, uh, grabs the metadata of every man, woman, and child in the United States, and in fact, around the world. And uh, corporate liberalism is also responsible for the erosion of rights that date back all the way to the Magna Carta, in some cases even uh, earlier. Uh, now we have uh, detention without trial, detention without uh, charge in many cases, as a result of uh, the direction that our government has taken uh, in an acute way over the last decade, but really in a, uh, a gradual way over the last half century at least, if not even longer. So corporate liberalism is something that is really corrosive of many of the things that we love most dearly, uh, certainly of the free market, of uh, freedom in government, and indeed of human rights and basic decency. So why is it so difficult? Why does Ralph have to write this book, Unstoppable, in order to show us how to fight this system? Why is it that not everyone simply recognizes the evil for what it is? 
Well, again, here I think the name is very accurate because it kind of shows us how a confusion has been introduced into our political discourse, which cripples us and makes us incapable of fighting this system which both left and right recognize as extremely dangerous. Because it's very easy for people in the mainstream or in the establishment of the Republican and Democratic parties to say that, well, if you're against corporate liberalism, they don't use that word, but they'll use you know, many other words that are related to it, that if you're against this, then you must be against free markets. You're against corporations? Well, that means you, know, you obviously are some sort of communist. Or liberalism, are you against liberalism? You're against the idea that humans everywhere around the world are entitled to democracy and human rights. Uh, if you're against that, then you, you know, if you're against American military operations abroad, then you must be against the universal uh, ethics that liberalism has traditionally espoused. So there's this conflict. And there's also the complication, which Ralph Nader's book helps to solve, that whenever the corporate liberals, whenever the establishment in both political parties wants to prevent any kind of left-right uh, collaboration, they simply say, well, look at your allies. I mean, sure, you may have differences with the mainstream of, or the establishment, rather, I should say, of the Republican Party, with the leadership of the Democratic Party, but aren't you actually closer, whether you're on the left or the right, uh, to the establishment in either party than you are to the extreme on the other side? Uh, isn't uh, someone like Ralph Nader really against all kinds of market freedom and isn't even a compromised kind of crony capitalism better than a progressivism which may seem to be totally opposed to what libertarians believe in in terms of market economics? Well, Nader's book, uh, I think, especially with its uh, intellectual genealogy that it brings out, really dispels that myth and shows that, in fact, it's not the case that American progressives are opposed to capitalism root and branch, but they're opposed to its abuses, and indeed libertarians and conservatives are as well. But there's a deeper and even more fundamental difficulty that we face in going to war with um, corporate liberalism, and that is that corporate liberalism really has enmeshed itself in our very way of life, not only in our way of thinking, but in so many of the institutions of our economic life, in our ways of conceiving foreign policy, and indeed in our government. And corporate liberals are able to say with some justification that you have to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That in fact, in trying to attack corporate liberalism, you will be doing some damage to the free market and that you will be doing some damage to the ethos of human rights, liberty, and democracy. Because there has been such a historical convergence, the bad kind of convergence, between corporate liberalism and the American way of life, we, have, we find ourselves confronting a very difficult and intractable problem. And that's why I think, again, Ralph Nader's book is extremely valuable, because it shows us practical steps that we can take in starting to differentiate these two things, starting to separate the American way of life from this perversion of the American way of life that represents corporate liberalism. Uh, I explore actually some of the difficulties that we're facing in terms of foreign policy uh, in the cover story of my most recent uh, issue of the American Conservative, where I talk about why liberalism, classical liberalism or modern liberalism, tends to go hand in glove with empire. It's not because it necessarily has to, but it's because historically things have evolved in a very dangerous way over the last 200 years or so. Well, I think Ralph Nader's book shows us a tremendous alternative, and it shows us the beginnings. It shows us the building blocks that we can use to start building a much bigger picture over time. And it starts with such common sense, practical ideas as auditing the Pentagon. Uh, conservatives believe in economic uh, rigor and efficiency, as do libertarians. Progressives believe that uh, the Pentagon is a, an institution that has committed a great many abuses. Surely we can come together and say that the Pentagon should be subject to the same sort of auditing that almost every other government agency is. This, in fact, has not been the case up until now, and it's something that really does, I think, bring together left and right in a very practical and efficient way. 
As we walk through these kinds of practical steps that bring us together and that help dispel the myths uh, that prevent us from cooperating, I think we can then begin to address the three most fundamental questions that the country is facing. And I believe as we step back and consider these three questions, we realize that they really are questions that can't be answered by left or right alone. That really are not, they're uh, questions that cannot be answered by some of the more reflexive uh, responses that you get from conservatives, libertarians, or progressives. The first of these questions is, what kind of economy do we actually have in this country? Is it in fact a free market economy, which liberals or people on the left look at our economy, they look at various abuses, they look at the plight of the poor and the middle class, and they say, well, if this is the free market, we are opposed to the free market. But is it in fact the case that the economy we have is a free market economy, or is it a mixed economy, or is it some other kind of economy? The second great question that I think we're going to wind up addressing as we walk through the practical steps that Ralph Nader has presented to us is the question of what kind of government do we have? Do we in fact have a democracy? Do we have a mixed constitutional regime, perhaps of the sort that the founding fathers aspired to? Or do we have something else, a deformed system, perhaps an oligarchy of some kind? And there are certainly both conservatives and libertarians and progressives who have taken a hard look at the way our political system works and have come to some very dark conclusions. And the final question, also a very big one, is what kind of foreign policy do we want? What is America's place in the world and what strategy is appropriate to achieving it? This question, unfortunately, has gone unaddressed for so long that a certain insider establishment, which has very little transparency and which makes decisions behind closed doors, has been able to use ideology and use rhetoric to get us into a number of wars that have had tremendously negative implications for our economy, for our civil liberties, and indeed for our very souls. So I think Ralph Nader's book, while it can't possibly answer all these questions in a comprehensive way, no single book possibly could, it does show us the beginnings of the answers. It shows us how to explore common ground in such a way that we can start to find out how to address the problem of corporate liberalism. So thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, uh, Ralph, for writing the book. Thank you, Cato, for hosting us. I had a lot of positive stuff and a lot of uh, criticism to give. Since it's been so positive, I might uh, lean a little heavier on the criticism in my comments. But I did want to talk about, um, well, first of all, I'm now a uh, suburban, conservative, libertarian, Catholic dad. But I was, I was born a limousine liberal in Greenwich Village, brought up by, uh, by liberal parents. My dad was an antitrust lawyer. Uh, who used Ronald Reagan's name as a curse. And all that we inherited from him, though, I think was a healthy distrust of, of big business. And I don't think enough of the right and of libertarians started off with that, uh, with that healthy distrust. But the, um, but the idea that pro-business and pro-free markets were identical, I think, dominated the right and prevented any interesting discussion on this topic until the bailouts. And then when Barack Obama was elected, having gotten a million dollars from employees of Goldman Sachs, the most that anybody had ever raised from a single company, this is Obama, Goldman Sachs, broke the record in that, in that period of, of that where McCain-Feingold existed, and then passed the stimulus with the support of the Chamber of Commerce, passed Obamacare, basically letting the hospitals and the drug companies write it. I think that woke up a lot of people on the right, a lot of libertarians and conservatives to the idea that, frankly, the single biggest enemy of free enterprise, the single biggest threat to it, is the big business lobby supporting more regulation. 
And when I, I say that to conservative audiences all the time, and usually the follow-up line is I say, it's not Ralph Nader. He's not the biggest enemy. Um, sort of holding him out as a, a sort of boogeyman to the left. Um, and that was before this, this book. And um, I think this will make it very clear that if what you're fighting against is, if what you're fighting for is free enterprise, then your biggest enemy is corporatism. And so then you are going to have to ally um, with the left. And the most important things, I think, in, in Unstoppable are sort of the warnings to libertarians and conservatives. The warnings, you guys are being played, you are being used by big business. Uh, at one point he writes, the corporatist Republicans let the libertarians and conservatives have the paper platforms, the party platforms that pass at the conventions, and then they throw out a welcome mat for big business lobbyists with their slush funds who are anything but libertarian or conservative in their demands. I've, I've spent hundreds of columns and two books trying to write this, and in one paragraph, you put very well what the dynamic in the Republican Party is. In fact, my uh, first book, I was looking for a blurb on the back, and I went to a, a Republican congressman who I knew agreed with me and, in fact, voted uh, appropriately, and the chief of staff came back and said, oh, the congressman loves a book. He wants you to sign it, but he's not going to blurb it. I said, why not? And she said, who do you think funds our campaigns? It's, <laughs> it's not the Family Research Council. And so this is one of the big problems. It's uh, the power imbalance. A structure is set up. Concentrated benefits go to the recipients of corporate welfare, and the costs are diffuse. There is not a lobby against corporate welfare. And that's one of the things. Ralph Nader always emphasizes the need for institutions to the point that somebody with sort of a libertarian uh, sense like me doesn't like the constant creation of, of institutions. But it's true. There is a lobby right now. I think the biggest, uh, most important fight in this regard is the Export-Import Bank, a corporate welfare agency. I'll talk about that a little more later. There is a very strong lobby to keep export subsidies going. There's a very tiny lobby against the export subsidies because the victims of these subsidies are the guys who don't get the uh, who don't get the loans because they're guaranteed for somebody else, or maybe whose competitors get them. They're never going to be as concentrated and organized as the recipients of the subsidies. Another interesting uh, warning in the book was for conservatives, particularly. And again, I consider myself one, but. Uh, uh, Nader writes, since established ways and institutions usually reflect the existing distribution of power, wealth, and property, conservatism has been associated with societies where the few dominate the many. And I just think, uh, especially the first part of that, that the conservatism, that that argument gets used to justify big government in many ways. That this idea of a resistance to change, which again, I think that's a good instinct. It's in the Declaration of Independence. You know, don't change before, unless you absolutely have to, because it'll bring about bad things. But that argument, the resistance to change, becomes a sort of corporatist protectionism. A lot of people use the word protectionism just to refer to tariffs to keep out outside goods. But I use the word protectionism to refer to stuff like the Wall Street bailouts. It was pinstripe protectionism. It was Wall Street, it's people looking around and saying, we have this economy where there are five big banks and they do good things. And yes, there are good things brought about by having these giant investment banks that can create more efficient flows of capital. They can do things that maybe 100 small banks can't do. So the pinstripe protectionism is looking at that and saying, because there are good things of this arrangement, we need to preserve that. And it ignores all the bad things of that arrangement. And it says, so the Wall Street bailouts were directed at saving 
the big banks, at saving the way Wall Street was working in 06, they said, we need to do that because there was good. It's a lack of imagination. And it is a sort of conservative mindset that if things are good, let's keep them that way, even if the invisible hand and creative destruction would come in and destroy that. I remember sitting in off-the-record uh, conservative meetings where somebody shows up and says, look, this new technology on the internet, this is ruining the record label's ability to make a profit. So somebody raises their hand and they say, why should we worry about the record label's ability to make a profit? And the conservative argument for the conservative crowd is, this is a legal, legitimate institution which makes profits, which pays taxes, which has employed all sorts of people, and so we ought to protect it. And you know what? Buggy whip makers were a legal, legitimate institution that employed lots of people. But it works to some extent. And one of my favorite things about the book is how it warns conservatives. They are using conservative arguments to subvert the free market and justify the protection of the status quo. One of the guys who wrote this most clearly was a liberal 50 years ago. I think he called himself a socialist, Gabriel Kolko. Kolko wrote a book called The Triumph of Conservatism. And he wasn't talking about you know, social conservative, fiscal conservative. He was just talking about that mindset, the preservation of the status quo, that the people in power ought to stay in power, that the current structures ought to be preserved. And uh, Kolko was one of the most formative uh, writers on my thinking, and I think uh, the, the book chan uh, channels some of that. I'm glad you brought up eminent domain because that was where I had a lot of my liberal friends saying, it's so confusing to me that I, I can't root for Pfizer. I can't root for this little lady in New London to have her house taken from me. But then I'm rooting for Antonin Scalia. And just it takes moments like that and like the bailout for the right to get your, your, um, your preconceived alliances smashed open. And where you see it today is things like it's small businesses, mostly on the local level food trucks. The restaurants in Washington, D.C., and in many other cities, are trying to get regulations on food trucks. This is not because the restaurant owners are you know, tripping over the long lines on, on McPherson Square. It's because they don't want competition. And you see it with Uber, where the taxi guys were driving all around here on Wednesday, deciding that really upsetting people, not providing service, and messing up traffic was somehow a good way to win popular sentiment over towards regulations that deny consumers of choice. You see it on all sorts of other things, Airbnb, where people can rent out their houses. These places where technology is allowing for competition with the incumbents is where you do get a lot of left-right coalitions. And we won on SOPA, the SOP Online Privacy Act, um, where you did have some corporations opposing the corporatists, and Google was against it, but almost all the lobbying was for it. But SOPA, why did we win that? All these congressmen sponsored this bill, and then they all withdrew their sponsorship. It's because you had an active elite, upper middle class elite, that was willing to fight against it. Food trucks. Who's fighting for food trucks? This is not sort of you know, your average immigrant family or your mom and pop. Again, it's urban elites who like their lobster rolls. When Uber fight was going on in City Hall, where the, the, the regulations were being proposed to keep Uber from operating here in DC, and we got lots of support on the left, our Washington Examiner editorial began, how do you turn a progressive, an urban progressive into a libertarian for a day? Threatened to regulate his limousine service. <laughs> so <laughs> these things happen. They, they're, they're natural to have these, but can you get it to go beyond it? The victims of 
the, of corporate welfare often aren't as visible and aren't as prominent as they are when it's, say, you know, your, your blogger at salon.com wanting to, to get a limo ride to his bar on U Street or, or wherever. You, that's probably actually an old reference. It used to be the hip neighborhood. That's, um, I'm learning that my hip references are now outdated references. I think uh, Unstoppable missed the target on a few points. And so I offer this criticism in a constructive light. It's kind of like we're in a new relationship, things are a little awkward, and we need to sort of get to know each other um, <laughs> a little better. Uh, some of the things identified under the word conservative in that book included the American Bar Association and Brink Lindsay, who, and neither of them I think would uh, broadly be identified as, as conservative. But I know, we all look the same to you from far away. It's, <laughs> it's understandable. Um, the, I have to defend one of my employee, employers, the American Enterprise Institute, identified as corporatists in the book. AI hired me to fight against corporate welfare. Um, and that this is maybe a new priority for a lot of groups on the right, but it's becoming one. Um, and lots of groups, I think, on the right that historically might have been more corporatist are coming around to, again, it took Obama for them to realize it. And maybe when there's a Republican president, a lot of these conservatives will stop pretending that corporatism exists. But um, AI also has people railing against Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. You have our chief economist, Kevin Hassett, beat up Bush for the ethanol subsidies. Um, so in every corner of Washington, well, not every corner, there are some organizations that are simply bought and paid for by Boeing and Lockheed Martin, but there are, in every corner of conservative and libertarian Washington, you can see some mobilization against corporatism, thanks, I think, in part to the bailout. I think FDR doesn't get enough scrutiny in Unstoppable. Um, FDR gave us the National Recovery Act, which was literally a government-enforced cartel of businesses that crushed small businesses. Uh, uh, the Schechter brothers, I believe was their name, were uh, two brothers who owned a Jewish deli who were um, abused by the NRA. You had Roscoe Filburn. Um, you might have heard his name during the Obamacare mandate debate because the government, what they did is they said, no, you're not allowed to grow corn for yourself. You have to be selling it into the economy because the ag industry didn't like people doing that. Um, the, Ralph, you do a good job of pointing out that on left and right there are people who are principled and people who basically are either corporatists or partisan. Um, but I think sometimes you miss how the, the liberal games are really tied up uh, and the liberal entities are really tied up with the corporatism. Minimum wage fight is not an easy issue. Um, I think part of the reason that there's so much popular support for it and then some conservative opposition is because, I mean, this is obviously a self-serving answer for someone who opposes a hike, but that it's a tricky economic issue and that we think it will cost wages. And it's worth noting that Walmart and Costco both support a hike in the minimum wage. And when I look at that, I think, is that because it will crush mom and pop who are more likely to pay lower wages? Every regulation adds to overhead costs, and that will fall more disproportionately on mom and pop. More broadly, the skepticism of regulation, the lessons of Uber, of airline regulation, all of these things ought to teach us every regulation makes it harder for a small guy. Sometimes it's justified, but typically they all make it harder for a small guy, and they put the ball in the court. Every time you uh, bring something into the arena of government, you are making it a home game for big business. That doesn't, that's not a conclusory argument against all regulations. It's just a warning. Um, and I would say that if, a final note, and then I'll go on to where I think the, the fights can be won. 
in your, your sort of argument discussion with Phil Crane um, and, and with Grover Norquist, the question is sort of who started this? Who is to blame? Is, is corporatism a question of government taking control of business, or is it a question of business taking control of government? I think the answer is both, and I think that a lot of people on the left, including this book, don't quite see the government's culpability as strongly in it. And it's not a question of a couple corrupt politicians. A lot of it is sort of the institution. And so I'll read your definition of corporatism and then critique it. Corporatism, or corporate statism, as Grover Norquist calls it, is first and foremost a doctrine of corporate supremacy. Whatever advances a system of power and status over the constitutionally affirmed sovereignty of the peoples comprises a widening, all-encompassing corporatist agenda. I think that leaves out the culpability of government. I think that you downplay the fact that corporatism is an alliance between government and business, and that that needs to be more strongly seen. Conservatives need to be made much more wary of corporations. Liberals need to be made much more worthy of politicians and government. And that, um, but that said, I think there are a couple fights that can win. And the easiest way to do it is when we look at Washington, getting something passed is really hard. You might think that's good, if you're a libertarian especially. Um, but killing things is a little easier, especially the way a lot of things work in Washington is it gets reauthorized temporarily. So there are fights, I think, that could be the real fights of a left-right coalition against corporate welfare. The current fight has to do with export subsidies. At the end of this fiscal year, the Export-Import Bank and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation expire. It's typically almost a unanimous, in fact, there's been unanimous consent or voice vote to renew it. This year, there's a real fight because you had Jeb Hensarling, who became, somehow became chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, despite not doing everything the banks ask him to, and he's opposing reauthorizing it. You had Eric Cantor as a majority leader who was a champion of it, and then something happened to Eric Cantor about a month ago where his new-to-be-replacement, uh, Kevin McCarthy, flip-flopped and said, no, we're, we're not going to reauthorize the Export-Import Bank. So if no bill passes, Export-Import Bank is dead. If no bill passes, Overseas Private Investment Corporation is dead. It's not an easy fight. Chamber of Commerce, National Association of Manufacturers are lining up big time to try to win this fight. But it's winnable because you don't have to get a majority of either chamber. You just have to get a majority of one or even the majority leader stopping it. There's not much of a public groundswell. Before the last month, nobody ever heard of Export-Import Bank. You say XM, they think you're talking about the satellite company. You say OPIC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. They think you're talking about the Arab oils, oil companies. But these are things that if people cared about and knew about, I think they would say it's a bad idea for US taxpayers to be forced to subsidize Boeing sales to the Chinese government. Ethanol is another one. It has to get renewed. The ethanol tax credit died, and the ethanol mandate has to get renewed. This is a place where some people used to think it was good for the environment. It's not. It's supposed to be good for farmers. It helps corn farmers at the expense of ranchers. Um, it drives up prices for drivers. It's probably bad for the environment. It's simply there for a few companies to uh, profit. Now, here's where it gets murky and uncomfortable, especially for the liberals and for me, is that the way to kill ethanol is probably to rope in big oil and like McDonald's, who pays more for their, their corn. Um, although that said, if there's anything you've done over the years, it's making uncomfortable alliances work. 
And then the other one that I would put up there after export subsidies and ethanol, and this one's probably worse, is the sugar program. This is part of the farm bill. It's unconscionable. They basically, we keep out foreign sugar and we loan money to the sugar growers. And then if, they, if the prices aren't high enough, they forfeit it to the government. Just we pay it, uh, we pay 20 cents a, a pound for raw sugar, buy it off the sugar growers, there's zero risk, and then we sell it to the ethanol makers for one cent a pound. It's, it's wonderful. So sugar, export subsidies, ethanol are three fights that are winnable because they all involve killing a piece of legislation that has to get renewed. I think there's broad left-right agreement on this, and it would be amazing to see the big concentrated industries that benefit from this lose both through strategy, bringing together the, the businesses that lose from them, and through trying to get people to care about it and, and the groundswell. I think going forward, we could have some really exciting times. We could change some of the way business is done in Washington. If you can get enough people, enough libertarians, enough conservatives, enough liberals to concentrate on this idea. I think, again, got to get to know each other a little better, figure out where we're going to agree and what issues we're just not going to bring up. Again, like a relationship, let's just not talk about that. Maybe minimum wage we leave aside, or public sector unions we leave aside, and just focus on this. The government should not be taking money from regular people and giving it to big business. That's something we can all agree on, and that's fights that I think, actually, we can win. Thank you. Ralph, did you uh, want to address anything that the commenters had said before we open up the floor to? Yeah, I, I, uh, listening to the interaction reminds me that uh, one of the purposes of this book is to go right down to the neighborhood and to the living room so people uh, who are left-right can have this kind of discussion and, and get to know each other and then move that ferment back home all the way to... Uh, Wall Street, Washington, state legislatures. And I was in Connecticut recently uh, on this book tour, and in the audience, uh, they actually formed an ad hoc group right in, right in the audience uh, and said they were gonna meet and discuss a number of these issues and then try to move them operationally. So it's in people's hands. Nobody can stop people from doing this. Uh, the whole point of this discussion is to show what the potential is uh, for people and now that they're watching on C-SPAN, people all over the country uh, can have these kinds of discussions. And there's nobody more fearful of a left-right alliance coming at them than the plutocrats and the oligarchs. In fact, in, in, in the Congress, whenever there's a rush of emails or letters, the senator says to the aide, uh, where are they coming from? And they usually know, well, they're coming from the lefties or the righties. And when the aide says they're coming from both, the, the senator pales. That's why I called it unstoppable. When the FCC put this rule out in 2003 to allow more concentration of big media over local TV, radio, and newspapers, there was such a huge uproar coming from the NRA types, common cause types on Congress that for the first time in congressional history, the House of Representatives challenged big media and voted to overrule the FCC rule by 400 to 21. And it was about to go over into the Senate, and they were getting the left-right barrage from the public, and the Senate machinery slowed it down until the stamina of the big media prevailed and blocked it. 
you see, that's why when you get the left-right, there, there's this idea of gridlock, this idea of paralysis is severely destabilized in terms of reflecting the will of the people. All right, let's uh, open it up for questions now. I'll call on you if you could give your name and make it a question rather than a comment. That would be awesome. Right here. Uh, Citizens United was greeted with as much enthusiasm in this building as the return of the hidden imam was, would be greeted in some Shiite circles. But can we not end? Is there any hope of ending the, the wedding of government and big business without overturning Citizens United? Is that for which one do you? You, you can. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, you see, I don't think uh, that corporations should have equal constitutional rights with human beings because I think their penchant for concentrating power and achieving immunity and impunity um, makes sure that they will be supreme over ordinary people. And so when it comes to Citizens United, I think that was a bad decision, not only because it enhances secret money and influence over our elections, procedurally bad uh, decision, but it basically allows corporations to independently spend as much money as they want against or for a political candidate, the local, state, and national. And there's no contest with individuals on that, you see? I mean, the entire presidential and congressional campaign in 2012 was slightly under $8 billion, right? That's, that's a quarter's profit for ExxonMobil a few years ago. So, the, so I would be against it. I found left, right are worried about big money in politics. They can't yet agree because they haven't spent enough time with each other on how to, how to get it done. I think there are ways to get it done, but when, uh, well, first of all, I, I look at the Republican Party and what's happened since Citizens United, and one of the sort of indirect effects has been a second power center against the against K Street. The business lobby used to be the only way for Republicans to get money, and now you have groups like the Club for Growth, uh, Heritage Action, these, these outside groups that are funded by basically rich conservatives, which is different than big business, and that they go ahead and they win or at least contest some primaries. We have, um, you know, Justin Amash is getting attacked by the business lobby, but there's other groups that are able to protect him. Thad Cochran almost got uh, driven out in part because there were outside groups. There's suddenly, and these are the same groups that are opposing, you know, export, import, bank, and that sort of thing. And the second thing is regulation in general, it puts the ball in the court of the big guys. And I think that when you get government involved and in who's allowed to participate in political debate and how much, you're going to skew things towards the big guys. We've seen the individual campaign contribution limits where you can only give $2,500 to a politician. First of all, why you would want to give $2,500 to a politician is beyond me. But, you know, we're supposed to be libertarians here to each his own. But what does that do? That means politicians, instead of getting a big check from a guy, have to go around and get 50 checks fr from a bunch of people. Who do you know who could go out, who's friends with a politician and knows, you know, 50 other businessmen? It would be the K Street lobbyists. So it empowers lobbyists because they become the bundlers. I think a lot of times it's the unintended consequences of regulation. So I agree. I think looking at the revolving door would be a good place to look. Regulate politicians more of what they can do, but regulating outside players in political debate, there's an argument for it, but I'm incredibly wary of that. 
let me just say zeroed in, I think, on one of the issues that uh, could completely blow up the left-right romance and its awkward getting to know each other phase. <laughs> right here. Hello, my name is Sahan. I'm interning here in the summer in Washington, D.C. at a uh, private uh, at a venture capital private equity startup fund. So my question is uh, uh, certainly. Oh, sorry. Uh, so my question is certainly I got the really good points came from both sides about how we can eliminate the corporate state. But wouldn't it be a challenge, especially for, do you know, to, you know, to convince the Republicans to say that, you know, a corporate state is not the best, given the fact that, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, Wall Street donors have been flooding in to the uh, uh, to to the Repo Republican Party in particular, and many uh, uh, many of the powerful Republican seats are being taken over by uh, people who get support by these business uh, business lobbies and the Wall Street and uh, and many of the contracting firms in particular. So, would it be uh, uh, how how hard would it be to convince the Republican Party to you know uh, a challenge to corporate state, given their funders are from the corporate state? Well, I would simply uh, reiterate what Tim has just said. What we've actually seen over the last, uh, you know, five or six years has been uh, the rise of a counterforce within the Republican Party against the Chamber of Commerce and against, uh, you know, so much of the corporate state. Now, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it's a matter of one set of rich guys versus another set of rich guys. But that's, you know, having that competition is much better than having a system uh, which, you know, combines economic power with political power in order to restrict competition. And what I would say, sort of answering both to this question and to the previous one, is that, you know, in some of these cases with uh, Citizens United, for example, I think you can perform a little bit of judo here and say, the case in favor of Citizens United, the case in favor of not having uh, regulation of political speech uh, and political spending as a part of speech, is that uh, you want as much competition as possible. You want the money to come from as many different sources in whatever you know, uh, quantities as possible in order to have the most um, uh, sort of evolutionary and uh, combative system possible so that you don't have uh, you know, just a few people who have all of the resources both in terms of power and in terms of money. You can connect that with some of the themes that Ralph talks about in terms of ballot access. Because the argument for ballot access and for widening the um, availability of ballot positions to third parties and independents is pretty much the same as the case for um, having uh, unlimited donations uh, in terms of our uh, political system. If you, want, if you believe in competition, if you think that uh, you should have uh, you know, as many voter choices as possible, then you should really look very closely at these restrictive regulations uh, that dictate that you know, only certain kinds of candidates, only certain parties have the most privileged access to our ballots. So I think that you can actually create a kind of left-right fusion here, uh, not necessarily uh, along the lines that Ralph has envisioned, but along the lines of uh, maximal competition within the political system. One of the points in the book is community self-reliance, local businesses, whether in energy and agriculture, food, uh, credit unions, community banks, uh, which is burgeoning around the country is a way to shift power back from Wall Street to Main Street. This is an area of huge convergence, huge convergence. And it's a lot going on. Yes Magazine is a magazine that chronicles a lot of what's going on around the country in terms of local community uh, self-reliance. The other thing is, I thought the most interesting comment by David Bratt, who overturned Eric Cantor. And this reflects liberals' uh, wise concern with too much money in politics from all sides. But too much emphasis on this begins to ignore the wisdom of his comment, which was, 
because he was outspent 27 to 1 by Eric Cantor. And on the evening of his election, he was interviewed by Fox News, and he said, money doesn't vote. Voters vote. So you see, that, that's a reflection of yeah. get down there with the grassroots and mobilize people. And so we, the obsession with money in politics, we, we should not forget about the other side, which can negate a lot of money in politics, which is local mobilization of the voters. Uh, the woman here on the aisle. Thank you. This is a question for the panel, but for Mr. Nader in particular. Uh, since the financial recession and particularly the housing collapse, we've spent a lot of time talking about the balancing the benefits and the risks of government-sponsored enterprise like Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. What I find particularly interesting is that we're not seeing a lot of discussion about what's happening with the farm credit system, which was intended to help young beginning and small farmers, but is now starting to give multi-million dollar loans to corporations like Verizon. And I see this, I'm curious to see if you guys think this is an opportunity for a left-right alliance to try and rein in the mission creep and return the focus back to uh, young beginning and, and small farmers as intended uh, by the farm credit system. Tim, is that an issue you've looked at? I've, I've never heard of that issue, and that's great. I love learning new stuff like that. Also, my father-in-law works for the Farm Credit Administration, so I probably shouldn't say anything about it until he retires, and then we should abolish it. Um, <laughs> but in general, I mean, the... The, what you're pointing at, it happens in all farm subsidies where here's the purpose of the organization and then it ends up serving the big guys. And I mean, in, in my mind, I actually learned the phrase uh, regulatory ca capture from Ralph Nader and the, um, it's, it's regular. So the, the guys who are supposed to be regulated capture it or if it's an organization that hands out money, it ends up the big guys get their hands on it. Even the Small Business Administration, this is happening with. And so for me, that's a lesson in that kind of conservatism of saying, when you create an institution in Washington, the guys with the best lobbyists are going to be the ones to get their hands on it. And let me just add that the danger of regulatory capture isn't simply in the fact that the regulated industries can buy politicians to do their favor. It's the fact that you can't regulate an industry without having massive amounts of information about that industry so you can make intelligent decisions. And the only where, place you can get that information is from the industry itself. They have a monopoly on the relevant information. They feed it to you, the regulators, in the right way. They frame it in the right way. And so it's very, very difficult over time for regulators not to succumb to the worldview of the regulated industry and get intellectually as well as fiscally captured. And can I just make one more quick point? Sorry. Um, this is an, a, a left-right convergence point on this issue. If you talk about banks, dumb rules instead of smart rules. You create, oh, well, these bank regulations are going to weigh this, and we're going to have regulators that do this and this and that. No, that's asking for capture. A cap on the size of a bank doesn't involve as much math. It doesn't involve as much of the looking to expertise. It doesn't involve as much lobbying. So when rules are called for, such as with the banks, which are backstopped by the taxpayers, then the rules should be as simple as possible and as transparent. And that's one of the great ways to make it uh, not get captured. Uh, right. The gentleman in the blue shirt. Thank you. I'm uh, Alan Abel. Uh, Mr. Nady, you mentioned the phrase 12 years when you were speaking. I don't know if you were referring to two terms of Hillary and one of Chelsea, but <laughs> someone here someone here needs to ask you about 2016 and uh, your thoughts about it. 
What was the question? Okay, your thoughts about two, your thoughts about 2016, uh, especially in the terms of the enlightened billionaire hunt. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it looks like uh, right now, if you, you want to guess, it's uh, the two dynasties, uh, Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton. Unless the Republicans want to implode on people like Rubio or, or Cruz, uh, but the big business is going to get behind Jeb Bush. By the way, he's different than George W. Bush. He's known to read a lot of books. <laughs> Not as good a painter, though. In the back. <laughs> good afternoon, Jeff Steele. Um, note of skepticism, given that the argument can be made that the American system has been deformed in having to compete in the 20th century against two arguably very uh, deformed systems, uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet communism. Um, given that we, given that our power structure has had to been built up to compete against those monstrous entities, and we still have a one-party state in China, uh, and the argument is made that, uh, you know, the Muslim, um, the Islamic, uh, caliphate risk is a monstrous, you know, threat, um, it seems easy that the status quo just continues because this power structure has been built and it's very difficult to deconstruct this massive power structure that was necessary to defeat the 20th century enemies. Uh, I think the issue of, of path dependence, how we got to the national security state in particular, uh, is, uh, is of great importance. And and the kind of failure of imagination uh, to rethink the premises of the national security state after the Cold War and the reflexive look for enemies of equivalent stature uh, is, uh, is part of what's maintaining that failure of imagination. Dan, do you? Well, but some about? of it's just a matter of time. I mean, Brink, uh, you know, in his introductory remarks um, and in some of our discussion before this event, uh, talked about how, you know, the experience of the Cold War had shaped his perceptions going into uh, the war on terror. Um, I think now the experience of the war on terror is going to shape our perceptions going forward and hopefully will lead to some uh, rather substantial reforms of our uh, military, industrial, and uh, national security states. That's only if we have a different level of civic motivation back home, because people define themselves as powerless and they take them out of the take themselves out of the equation, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People have no idea how powerful they are, uh, even if you point to areas in American history. Again and again, major changes have occurred uh, by less than one percent of the people organizing, reflecting broader public sentiment. That's true, right through American history. Uh, the Occupy Wall Street made a big deal of the 1%, the richest 1%. They might have talked about the 1% that would mobilize, reflecting public sentiment, can turn this country around again and again. And that, that almost inherently means a left-right reflection of opinion. So the book does talk about shift of power from the few to the many in some rather unique areas. Uh, providing facilities so people can voluntarily band together more easily as consumers, as taxpayers, as voters, as workers. Uh, but we, we, weren't, we, weren't, we didn't have time to discuss it. A lot of these battles between left-right about big money in politics and the rights of big business and all uh, can be handled by shift of power 
in the private sector. And you can see that a lot of the environmental advantages in our country came by a handful of nonprofit environmental advocacy groups, starting with Earth Day. And they, re they represented a majority sentiment of the people about choking air pollution, contaminated water, and unsafe food. That's why they got it, they got it through. And they represented a broader public opinion, but it's just a handful of people. I can cite, and the book cites a lot of examples like that. Okay, let's take one more. Uh, this gentleman here, about two-thirds of the way back on the aisle. Uh, a mic will come to you. No. I think he was. Yeah, on the aisle, two-thirds back. Hi, my name is Brian. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I'm interning up here uh, in D.C. And my question is based on the ballot access and what you guys were talking about earlier. Um, the Federal Election Commission um, is seen, in my opinion, as one of the biggest barriers for third parties and other candidates to get on the ballot. And my question is, would you recommend reforming it, abolishing it? And if you recommend reforming it, how would you do so? Well, um, you know, during one of our uh, presidential campaigns, we assembled enough information uh, about the Democratic Party pushing us off ballots, all kinds of unsavory manners and tying us up in court. We were sued 24 times in 12 weeks to get us off the ballot in the states in the summer of 2004. Uh, our petitioners were harassed and intimidated, on and on. So we compiled this major brief asking the Federal Elections Commission to investigate, and they turned it down and never sent the brief to, the, in effect, the, the defendants. Uh, and it's a paralyzed agency because it's 3-3, and it's going to break 3-3 in deadlock, three Republicans, three Democrats. So I would really urge the complete abolition of it and then start new in a much more effective and simpler manner, because there are bad behaviors between parties and, and, uh, and candidates that have to be dealt with, but not, not the way the FEC has been doing, or even been avoiding doing anything, because they're totally deadlocked on any major accusation against one party or the other. I'll, ju I'll just say on the, uh, this brings up exactly my skepticism, Ralph, is when you say this organization doesn't work, it's been captured by the powers, so let's scrap and make a new one. I mean, it sounds to me like, well, Lucy pulled the football away from Charlie Brown last time, but this time they'll hold it. Trying to say, it almost suggests that the problem was something just in this particular government institution, and if we can just wipe it clean and make a new government institution, that one won't get captured by the powers, the industries, or that sort of thing. And that's always where my skepticism pops up. If it got captured last time, it'll get captured this time. If it was a tool for the, the powers that be last time, it'll become that again. Well, I, I, I also worry about that too, Tim, but I don't associate it with inevitability. And I always think that simpler systems that give incentives to go to court instead of going to the FEC uh, are very preferable. But if you strip people standing to sue, if you put all kinds of procedural obstructions to them so they can never have their day in court on the merits of their complaint, you've got, you got to give them more rights for their, to initiate their own uh, grievances 
in a court of law. And if you do that, uh, a lot of what the FEC is supposed to be doing but doesn't do can be replaced. But when you can't have your own day in court, when we filed all kinds of cases uh, on what happened to us in Pennsylvania, and every time we were thrown out, we were thrown out by a procedural issue, never on the merits. We never got a single day in court on the merits. So if you block the access to the courts, you got to go with some sort of regulatory agency. If you open the access to the courts, you don't need that level of regulation. Uh, I think we're uh, out of time now. Let me just uh, add, in closing, uh, there was a radio program recently about Ralph's book, and Ralph and I were interviewed separately, so I, I heard his segment. And at the end of it, it was noted by the interviewer that uh, Ralph had uh, recently marked his 80th birthday, and Ralph... Uh, replied that the only real aging is the erosion of one's ideals, which I thought was, uh, as someone who's experiencing lots of apparently unreal aging these days, uh, remarkably inspirational. So on that wonderful note, uh, let's thank Ralph Nader and the commenters. Thank all of you for coming.